Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I am Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, handcuffed to the girl who double-crossed him, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Handcuffed to the girl who double-crossed him. That's, hmm. Like, the only thing I can think of is, like, those. there's a couple of early Hitchcock films that have exactly that premise, but... I don't actually think there's a double cross involved there, at least not between the women and the girl. So I'm, I, I'm the man and the woman. Um, but I'll just say anyway, is it secret agent? <laughs> you were so close. I was kind of willing you on there. Uh, mm. It's 39 steps. Ah, oh, yep. Yep. That was the one I was thinking. There were two, because 39 steps is obviously the one he made in England. And then I, I think it's Saboteur might actually be the one, which is essentially just 39 steps remade in America. Mm. Uh, and I couldn't remember what that they were. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, oh, so close. Yeah, but it was, that's a real tagline from the kind of the Ron Seal. Literally, just just sum sum the plot up in a, in a sentence. Mm. The guy yeah. is literally handcuffed to the girl who double crosses him. It's kind of a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> it was yeah. uh, they were a bit tighter on spoilers uh, these days than they were back then. Anyway, uh, moving on. There's news this week. Some of it unrelated to films. So we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, we have uh, Hamilton, that musical that, that, that Ed and I like. They've released a, a kind of a record uh, this week off the back of it called the Hamilton Mixtape, which is a collection of songs from the musical covered by famous people. And the lineup is pretty goddamn amazing, I have to say. Uh, there's also some songs that have been cut from the musical that have been presented here for the first time. There's a couple of demos on there as well. Uh, it's been kind of slowly teased out. Um, and we finally got to hear it um this week and um i'm certainly uh less than whelmed by it i would say i'm, I'm particularly underwhelmed and therefore i kind of to the point that i don't really see why the thing exists other than to make a bit of cash yeah i mean it i i've been looking forward to it for a while just because you know it's a hamilton thing <laughs> and i kind of look forward to anything hamilton related although i was in a bookshop the other day and there was a whole uh there was a whole kind of end cap thing which was nothing but hamilton books so i think uh things may be getting a bit uh too far at this point mm -hmm. it's like we've got the musical and we've got the wrong chernow book we don't need eight other books about <laughs> and alexander hamilton uh and all the shit that he did uh the impetus for the the mixed up tape actually kind of comes back to the original idea which is that when lynn manuel miranda came up with the idea of doing something about alex the life of alexander hamilton his idea was to do a mixtape where he would kind of come up with songs based around things that happened in his life and then get people to contribute to it. And, and this is kind of an outgrowth. And, and then the musical grew out from there. And this is kind of reverting to the original idea. And in some respects, that's kind of, that's kind of cool and interesting. Uh, like you say, you get to hear some songs that were cut from the musical due to time and pacing issues. Like there's a song on there called congratulations which in the musical was sung by or would have been sung by the character of angelica schuyler just basically chewing out hamilton after he publishes the reynolds pamphlet and destroys his political career and his family life uh, which is is kind of presented here in kind of a nice produced way for the first time uh, so that's like cool and it's a nice little off cut and, and there are a few songs on there like there's a, a new version of the song my shot which is done by the roots featuring like people like buster rhymes which mm -hmm. is which is great because it's a familiar bit of music but with new with new with new lyrics you know new verses from like really talented t talented rappers and there's a there's a great song on there called immigrants we get the job done which features amongst other people uh riz ahmed uh mm -hmm. of the night of and star wars and four lines and also of his kind of great side career as a, as a rapper as riz mc so there's a lot of kind of good stuff on there but at least a third of the a third of the songs on there i would say are like straightforward covers mm. and they're straightforward covers done by cool people like i'm really it was really fun hearing ashanti and jay ja rule singing together again on, on a new version of helpless there's a, a really great version of 
of Dear Theodosia sung by Regina Spector and Ben Folds, which is really lovely. But then you also have like a new version of the song Wait For It, which in the musical is this kind of electrifying moment that uh, Leslie Odom Jr. does brilliantly on on stage uh, and on the record. But on the record, uh, on this uh, mixtape is sung by Usher, Mm. who makes it, who kind of sounds off the edges and makes it all a little kind of pristine and R&B-ish. And like that's, you know, he he does a good job of, of that sort of thing. But if you're going to include a cover, it kind of feels like you would want it to be a radical reinvention or a demonstrable improvement. Mm. And that's yeah. neither. It's, and I felt that way about it. I mean, that was the first song I heard that I started to... Because I heard the, the My Shop um, cover and that's pretty cool because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the hook from the song and then people have done their own thing with it. Um, but then um, Wait For It is lifeless, insipid version of it which which kind of adds nothing new. It doesn't try to do anything different with the music or the melody or doesn't really try and kind of add anything. And Usher is, you know, I mean, he has his strengths. He can pop his collar um, better <laughs> than anyone. But, yeah, he doesn't really imbue that with any kind of uh, power or any... Um, personality at all um, and it, when I saw that there was a cover of Satisfied which is which has gone on to be one of my favourite songs from the show mm. um, with Sia Fuller and Queen Latifah um, I thought oh wow I bet that'll be good but it's kind of just the same as the one in the musical um, yeah. and it you know, the whole thing feels a little uh, flat and I don't really get what we're adding other than a few bits of fluff um, and I think that presenting some of those songs out of context doesn't really work. Yeah, uh, it, the whole fact that we're being given the mixtape after the musical has existed and after people have been able to listen to the cast album for more than a year, uh, it, you're kind of being presented with something that, that has been outgrown by what Hamilton became. Mm. So it, it kind of, as opposed to being like, this exciting thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda had in mind initially, it's just kind of become an afterthought uh, in, in a sense. Like, so again, like some of the stuff on there is good and there's some songs on there that uh, I'd happily listen to again, but there's also like Jimmy Fallon and the Roots doing one of King George's songs. And you think mm, that's, that's not something I needed. Mm. That's not something I plan to listen to a second time. Mm. Yeah. Although in, on kind of related Lin-Manuel Miranda news, uh, I finally heard In the Heights for the first time. My wife went to see it, just finished his run here, and she kind of was going on about how she loved it and listened to that uh, soundtrack, and that's that's bloody great. Yeah, that's a that's a lovely one. That was uh, my uh, soundtrack for going on dog walks for a couple of weeks, like back in back in August when I was toying with going to see the show when I was down in London, but I ended up not being able to because uh, when I was in London for the London Podcast Festival, it was on at the same time as all of the events and and the timing just never worked out but yeah that's a that's fantastic the only problem being that unlike hamilton which is essentially an opera and you can follow the entire story uh in the heights is like uh, ha- has the traditional musical structure of song dialogue scene song dialogue scene so even though all the songs are great is is there's less of a for me there's less of a clear sense of, of narrative unless you know what the story is ahead of time yeah, I, I had to have uh, it annotated by my wife, mm. who has an amazing recall uh, for such <laughs> things. But yeah, well, there you go. On to films now. And um, I mean, it's 2016, so it's you know it's going to be dreadful. And we're going to have to talk about it because it's kind of dominated the news cycle this week. Kind of had a... Well, it's not really a revelation, is it? Because it's not particularly new news, but it's kind of seemed to have bubbled to the surface rather unpleasantly. Um, kind of news about... Last Tango in Paris, a kind of controversial and you know, I'm not particularly fond of it film uh, myself. Mm. Uh, that uh, revelation that um, the very famous and controversial rape scene, otherwise known as the butter scene, yeah. um, is was uh, not shot with the consent of the actress Maria Schreiber. Which uh, this leads there's going to be a whole bunch of issues in this that we're going to talk about, but um, mainly that it's, it, it came out now after, you know, it was a three-year-old interview or whatever. And for some reason it's come out now and it's very important that it comes out. And it's very important that people talk about it and that, that people kind of like, uh, you know, condemn the behavior and, and everything that it kind of stands for. But um, it really, the message that that really did get muddled, didn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, so a large part of, of this story and that's kind of a problem with it is how it's been framed in a lot of the reporting and in also how the story ended up being shared on social media. Uh, and so, like, to to kind of go into the, the backstory of this, in like you say, in uh, Last Hang in Paris, there's kind of a, a, an infamous rape scene between uh, Maria Schneider and Marlon Brando's character. And that scene was not originally in the movie. That was not in the script that Maria Schneider saw when she signed on to be in the film. And she didn't know there was going to be that. That scene was going to happen until literally the day that they shot it mm-hmm. and it was sprung on her as this 19 year old actress who's working with you know bernardo bertolucci who was a, a hugely acclaimed filmmaker marlon brando one of the most famous actors in the world uh even though he was kind of in the the pre-godfather kind of doldrums of his career and so she um did she did the scene because it's obviously in the movie but the reason why she wasn't told that it was going to happen was as, as um, Bertolucci says in that interview. And as she herself said in interviews going back, kind of like 10 years and, and earlier than that was he basically wanted to get um, a real reaction out of her, you know, essentially saying like, I wanted, he wanted to get her sense of humiliation and degradation, which he felt could only be got if this scene was kind of sprung on her and she was forced to do it without adequate preparation or anything like that uh and so the, the story is basically that she was humiliated and degraded by people that she trusted and it was uh a horrible thing for bernardo bertolucci and marlon brando to do because it's horribly unprofessional it's an abuse of their power as kind of a, a, an respected director and actor uh, and all of that but the story became misinterpreted in how it was then relayed because a lot of the stories that came out about it were saying that the rape was like an actual sexual assault that happened on screen Mm. that she had there had actually been that they had actually had sex and it hadn't been consensual and that's kind of the way the story has been reported out there and and like i don't want to diminish how awful it was for maria schneider you know she says that it was traumatic and she had like many problems you know in ensuing years as a result of it and as a result of the controversy surrounding the film which kind of dogged her for the rest of her life really for being in this notorious scene in this controversial movie but it's there's there's the difference between what has been kind of shared out and reported on social media often seemingly without people really understanding what the story is which is that there was real sex and a real rape in Last Tango in Paris. And what actually happened, which is that she was treated abhorrently by Marlon Brando and Bernardo Bertolucci, but not actually raped. Mm, Yeah. And that's a weird thing because I kind of, as I'm sure a lot of people are guilty of doing now, you kind of skim Twitter and you take in bits of information and when I saw it first being reported, I was like, holy fuck, this is, you know, people saying that, like, essentially Last Tango in Paris is a snuff film, essentially, mm. which is actually not what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's pretty much as bad as that, because if you look at the impact that it had, she very much struggled uh, with kind of building a career after that. She never mm. did another sex scene in a film um after that and you know she had struggles with alcoholism and addiction and and all sorts of things and you know didn't really get to kind of see it through Mm -hmm. um whilst bernardo bertolucci and and marlon brando go on to be revered um in their their fields which is kind of appalling and and people directors do do unprepared stuff in films all the time um and a lot of the time it is you know at the um at the kind of cost of their actors um but they understand what they're going in in for um mm-hmm. when the guys shot the exorcist they knew that william freakin was a bit mad and they knew mm-hmm. that he would fire a gun on set to make people jump um and he would you know fuck with his actors but that is not what's happened here what has happened has been uh, an actor and a director have uh, abuse their power to sacrifice 
um, a human being's dignity for, you know, their own kind of artistic endeavours, um, which is kind of just like the worst, really. Uh, and like, I think it gets it, it, whilst the story has been kind of misrepresented and misreported in some cases, it, I think it's very important that we don't lose sight of the fact that this, what actually has happened, is still so fucking terrible that it's kind of it, it's very nearly as difficult to get your head around yeah and like you say it is still like a horrible thing but i might like the thing that i think is is bad about the the reporting which also like in like in a 2016 way is so kind of like plays into the idea of like fake fake news and post-truth and people sharing things about really understanding them or kind of like fact checking or people reporting things out because because like some of the articles reporting on it seemed to have very unclear grasp of what the story was mm. or, or they deliberately kind of had um titles or, or kind of even just headings in tweets that essentially just lo- were there to get people to click on it or to share it mm-hmm. um like the, the 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 reporting of the more sensationalized version of what happened and the thing that's not technically what really happened obscures the fact that this is still a story about kind of gender and power imbalance and power Mm. dynamics on a film set which is still kind of relevant in 2016 because like that sort of stuff like i can't think of of anything quite that terrible happening in recent times but i'm fairly sure if you kind of if you only did like a little bit of digging into practices going on at the moment you would not struggle to find cases of kind of actresses particularly or particularly young actresses being forced to do things by kind of more experienced actors and producers and directors just because they're the ones who have the power in that particular dynamic Mm. and while this is an especially extreme version of that uh i think like the the uh version that is being reported out is so a inaccurate and b extreme that it could run the risk of obscuring the real kind of issues at play mm, yeah it's just by you saying that kind of i just thought of um like was it larry clark and chloe savigny a few years ago they did a follow-up to kids something was it called yeah. bully or something like that yeah 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 and bully, there yeah. was a, a big thing about how like he filmed her kind of upskirt without her wearing underwear and she hadn't agreed to it and yeah like with that and with her reaction to it i could i never was quite sure what was being what was kind of like not a publicity stunt with that it was very hard to tell in that kind of milieu but i mean that Mm. that could so easily be true and so easily be just yet another kind of fragrant example of a kind of a, a misuse of of kind of like male power and and kind of just fuck the patriarchy, Ed. Like we're a bunch of monsters. <laughs> yep, pretty yeah. much. It's that's just... what this year has demonstrated. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's. I mean, that's a serious issue. We had to kind of talk about it. Like, uh, we didn't want to bum anyone out, but you know, it would have been uh, remiss for us not to mention it. But yeah, there you go. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a frothy follow-up piece like a duck on a skateboard, <laughs> like they used to do on the news, to uh, to kind of ease people into it. So um, let's just try segueing into this week's main topic, Ed. What is it? We're going to talk about uh, actors who, and you know, directors to be said, but mainly actors who play against type, people who have an established persona and who decide to push against that and go in a different direction uh, and cases where that works kind of swimmingly and you get a great performance and like in some cases actors get an entire new career or cases where it doesn't work and uh, actors end up looking kind of horribly embarrassed because they tried something and it didn't work mm, yeah so in a way we're going to talk about typecasting uh, yeah. and we are going to talk about kind of reinvention um and uh yeah trying kind of new things and, and being pigeonholed but yeah um so i kind of want to say like maybe in to provide some historical context, um, in the good old days of the studio system, you know, they, they owned everything, they owned the actors, they owned everyone. It, you know, it was quite an obvious thing to have people who were that guy for that thing. Um, mm-hmm. And you would get uh, character actors and lead actors, and there was very little deviation in what those people did. Your lead actors 
they played themselves essentially, um, and kind of like just shades of shades of that 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 kind of persona that, that, that in many ways the studio would cultivate for them. Um, and then supporting players would always play the same roles. You see things like uh, Walter Brennan in a lot of the kind of westerns, the 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 kind of archetypal town drunk. Um, and you see people like Anthony Quinn will always play, you know, because he, he could do accents. <laughs> I think he basically <laughs> just always played the non-white character uh, in mm-hmm. in any film. And on the flip side, you had all your stars who would who would carefully cultivate and play into what the studios thought was their most marketable traits. Yeah, so you would have someone like a Jimmy Stewart who, for apart from a few early roles where he played villains, like he's a villain in one of the Thin Man movies, which is quite fun. But for the most part, he was, you know, a kind of the decent small town guy. Mm-hmm. Like you occasionally get kind of uh, darker roles, particularly after World War uh, after World War Two. But uh, when he, you know, he saw combat and he started to kind of push himself. But even then, uh, even someone like George Bailey, who's kind of like a desperate man who tries to kill himself, he's kind of the pa- uh, the paragon of decency in that movie. And then if you look in things like The Shop Around the Corner, The Philadelphia Story, you know, he's basically just kind of like a really charming guy, similar to Cary Grant as well, who's also in that movie. But you know, his thing was he was just kind of like a really kind of effortlessly charming lovable lead uh john wayne obviously is probably the most typecast uh Mm. actor there is um once he settled on being a cowboy you Mm. know with the with the exception of something like the quiet man where he's just an irish cowboy um (laughs) pretty much (laughs) or or um the barbarian and the geisha where he's like a cowboy in japan uh yeah or yeah i guess the only thing he really kind of broke away was when he played uh when he was in the conqueror and he was genghis khan but he was genghis khan as a cowboy mm-hmm. um you know he, he had his persona and he basically he, he learned how to kind of play different notes of in that but he was that was essentially his his role that's what he did for, for his whole career was he played variations on this kind of gruff cowboy persona mm. and if you kind of listen to old episodes of you must remember this um what i still find shocking when they say it because you kind of know about it but you don't really kind of connect it is they would take a star like a Jean Harlow or something and she would say well I'm good at this and they'd be like yeah but you've got blonde hair so we'll make you do this do you know what I mean they just kind of the studios you know you you were their property as actors and as uh, kind of assets I guess and they would they would shoehorn you into whatever role they thought would make the most money Mm. even if it meant playing outside of your natural range i guess yeah and if uh, they didn't like you they would just put you in a lot of stuff that they knew wouldn't work so that it would fail and eventually they could just like quietly cancel your contract Mm. yeah and it's it's weird because you wouldn't get a lot of opportunities to play against type you perhaps would be working for um directors who were kind of working within the house style Mm-hmm. Um, so you wouldn't get a lot of deviation from that, but you did get deviation during the kind of latter end of that period. You got like to use your examples. You got uh, Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, for example. Like yeah. I say it was a per- post World War Two role for him, um, but that role is dark as fuck. Yeah, he's a very dark, tortured man, uh, obsessive, very much a uh, stand-in for Alfred Hitchcock in many ways. A lot of his obsessions and um like as brian de palma like has said about the film you know the idea of it as being a film essentially about what directors do which is kind of reshaping people into do what they want mm-hmm. uh and so you see a lot of so in that you hear that is him at his most kind of dark and desperate and and strange and he would do that in other stuff like uh i think uh, bend of the river or the naked spur like he did a lot of really great psychological westerns of anthony mann where they kind of pulled into that that darkness but that was the one that was the one that went the furthest with it mm. uh, to the extent that when it didn't succeed alfred hitchcock vowed never to work with him again because he blamed him for it mm. i didn't know that is that true yeah yeah did, he did they work together again as well they did not know after then you get things like he he worked with 
uh, Cary Grant again in uh, North by Northwest, and they did Psycho, and then like his his work rate his work rate uh, trickled down a little bit over the last decade and a half. Mm. Okay, I didn't know that. I've learned everything. Every day is a school day uh, here on the <laughs> podcast. Um, John Wayne, uh, whilst he is uh, kind of easily identifiable as a cowboy, as Ed has gone to great pains to tell us um, <laughs> in something like The Searchers, um, that's mm. a, a role of kind of extraordinary depth, especially given. Uh, his politics yeah it's is an incredibly dark and uh, like you know similar to jimmy stewart a, a a tortured role and a role where he is pretty determined uh he he's uh he doesn't have kind of any kind of movie star vanity about it mm. like you do see some of that charm that he's that is kind of typifies him creeping through particularly kind of in the middle section when the movie stops being about him hunting for natalie wood and kind of just settles down and i think there's a wedding <laughs> there's like a, a wedding in the middle of it and everyone's kind of like uh hanging out and just kind of uh having a good time but like during the scenes of them actually pursuing the indians who kidnapped natalie wood playing his niece um the uh the the obsession that he brings to it and the way in which he plays with the notion of Ethan as a man who is so profoundly hateful towards the Native Americans that he would possibly kill his own family because he would think that they had been tainted by the association. Uh, is, you know, that's very outside of, you know, the Ringo kid in Stagecoach. That's very far away from that, even though. They, those two films were shot by the same director and are in no kind of in the same genre uh, and, and and have a, in certain scenes a kind of a similar feel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. As the studio system and uh, the kind of studio's grip, I guess, on on talent starts to kind of fall away, you see a lot of stars moving out of their um, established um, personas to work with. Like maybe different directors outside of that, like you see Henry Fonda, who was always the kind of blue-eyed American kind of hero, the paragon of virtue, you know, Jura number eight, um, you know, America's everyman, um, and do something like Once Upon a Time in the West, um, where he is, you know, a really awful human being, but it takes, mm-hmm. you know, moving to Europe and, you know, doing a film with a European director uh, much later in his career when perhaps the stakes aren't so high, um, to kind of get get away from that kind of uh, that mold, and you also, I think, you sometimes get kind of accidental uh, playing against type when, for example, like a new star breaks through and the studio doesn't quite know what to do with them, so they mm. just try them in a bunch of things. So to to go back to someone we've already mentioned in a not particularly flattering context, uh, Marlon Brando obviously became a kind of a huge star because of Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront and, the, you know, Sophie de Davila Kazan. But he also was cast in Guys and Dolls mm-hmm. or uh, or um, uh, a Julius Caesar, which is kind of more, makes more sense because he came from theatre, but it's still not, you know, you don't go to the guy who's kind of the, the method, the, the method man? No, that's not who he is. <laughs> M E T H M E T H O D man is always yes. saying yeah yeah <laughs> uh, to go to like the the person who typifies the method approach mm. to for you know Shakespeare which is obviously very uh, more rigorous and kind of established and not necessarily about kind of plumbing the the depths of of uh, or improvising <laughs> or improvising new dialogue you know so so in something like Guys and Dolls where he is like wildly out of place. Um, you can see there the studio thinking, okay, this guy's really hot right now. We have the rights to this really successful stage musical. We've got Frank Sinatra, you know, let's, let's put him in and see how it works. Uh, and it kind of doesn't, but you know, that's, that's not necessarily him pushing, like trying to push himself to do something new. It is more just kind of like the studio saying, okay, what can we put this guy in while he's still uh, kind of a, a hugely, famous and kind of um enticing property mm. it's weird isn't it you've got guys and dolls because as jarring as that film is and him and marlon brando being in it i still really watch it like it's still super watchable even his scenes which you mean he's not the strongest either he doesn't even sing most of his lines does he and his singing is 
um only kind of a step up from rex harrison talk singing <laughs> yeah uh but no like it, it's i think it's just because it's such a it's such a great musical and it's such a charming uh charming piece of work that you could slot lots of different actors in and it would still probably more or less work mm. uh, and he at least has kind of the the confidence to carry it off yeah yeah. Like he throws himself into it, even though he's like completely not the right person for that style of movie. Mm-hmm. I suppose the big thing about talking about kind of historical typecasting is like the the unless you were at the top of the food chain actor wise, um, you just didn't have the freedom of choice, did you? Mm, no. Uh, and whereas today, you know, you you kind of read about people kind of thinking about casting decisions and. And kind of what you know, talking about whether you know they should take the role or not, and you know, back in the day, you just did the job. Yeah, you did the job. If the movie made a lot of money, they would cast you in a film that was very, very similar, uh, almost immediately, and just kind of keep putting you in that until people stopped watching you. Like that's why that's why Catherine Hepburn's in so many screwball comedies. Mm-hmm. Like she was really good at, at screwball comedy, so they kept putting her in it uh, until the point where she got labeled box office poison and uh, she struggled to get good roles. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In kind of modern filmmaking then like kind of post new Hollywood, I guess I find it harder to pin actors down and that kind of probably reflects uh, the wide variety of work a lead actor would do. You mean, you still think of someone like Harrison Ford, for example, is Harrison Ford in most films he plays. He's, he's, there's, he's one of very few lead actors who doesn't, try an awful lot different yeah and yeah. They're, they're kind of much rarer now than they used to be well yeah there's there's kind of an ongoing um debate that ongoing and that it seems to have been going on for about a decade or so now about whether or not movie stars really matter anymore if movie stars are really a thing because mm. like the idea is that what matters now is like branding or a franchise property or a high concept and those things kind of don't matter anymore and so when people talk about like the most recent people you would point to as genuine movie stars in that their association with the film was pretty much the reason why people would go to see it regardless of what it was as you get into like the late 80s early 90s and you look at people like uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts uh, you know uh, Meg, Meg Ryan uh, and and those were kind of stars because they had people kind of knew what to expect from a new Tom Hanks movie or they knew what to expect particularly from a new Tom Cruise movie because he was someone who I mean we, we talked about uh, this a, f- a few weeks ago with him uh, like how a lot of his films in the 80s and, and the early 90s have a similar vibe to them like he's the best at a thing and that thing changes from movie to movie but the the kind of overarching plot of a cocktail a top gun a days of thunder don't really change all that much so mm. you know what to expect from him pretty much every time out mm. but i suppose uh tom cruise typifies what we kind of think about now as the modern actor in that they will do um some films that uh, support their uh, their kind of star persona. They'll they'll keep doing the Mission Impossible's and and the kind of the Edge of Tomorrow's and the, the Jack Reachers. But then when award season rolls around, they will pony up for summer claim. Yeah, and particularly he definitely did that uh, sort of towards the end of the nineties. Like mm. he had had this string of colossal huge hits where he could turn something like jerry Maguire into a movie that earned like hundreds of millions of dollars which is is hard to imagine now like mm. a talky romantic drama about a sports agent would be one of the kind of the top grossing movies of the year uh in the same year or yeah i think in like the same year he was also in mission impossible um but then like when you get into the late 90s he does eyes wide shut he does um which uh, uh, and magnolia both of which are movies that really push against his established persona of you know kind of like the all-american action hero by in eyes wide shut painting him as this kind of jealous normal if ridiculously athletic and attractive uh, guy who's in a marriage and he starts to have doubts about his the faithfulness of his wife and goes to sex parties and things like that or um, magnolia where they take his basic charisma and his 
um his charm and kind of invert it and basically say what if he used these powers for evil <laughs> mm. what if what if he took that um that inherent kind of compelling quality and had him like as a proto mra dickhead mm. yeah and he's you get the impression from that that he saw Boogie Nights and just wanted to be involved in whatever Paul Thomas Anderson did next. But, mm. you know, it feels like he's kind of risking something with Magnolia. And I don't mean, like, if people if fans didn't like it, his career would be over. Like, he's actually stretching himself and he's pushing himself and he's in some way playing with his perceived persona. Yeah, he's it's one of the few movies he's in where he is completely willing not to be likable because mm. so much of his his brand or his persona is based on him being a fundamentally likable guy even if you know he's maybe a little bit too arrogant a bit of a hot shot you know he's still you know kind of the charming guy that people want to want to kind of emulate in some way and in magnolia he's just kind of this horrible bitter twisted version of that that same character with awful awful hair uh and you know nothing that anyone would want to emulate Mm, yeah absolutely and even though you know frank mackie is essentially redeemed at the end of at the end of magnolia it is by no means kind of cut and dry and unlike you know a lot of his films uh yeah like you say we're not sure how we feel about his character and, you know, that is something he was 100% willing to go along with. He got an Oscar nomination for it, but did not win. Uh, I don't know what won that year, but um, it had to be pretty good because Magnolia didn't really win a whole lot, which it kind of should have done. I'm, I'm a, we've been over this before. I'm kind of borderline obsessed with that film. Mm. It's a great movie, yeah. I'm trying to think of what would have come out in 1999. Uh, I can't... Was a Affliction wasn't that year, was it? Could have been, yeah. James Coburn. <laughs> could have, that might have been the year before, actually. Um yeah. But yeah, um, it was it was a, kind of the nineties had a really good end, didn't it? Yeah, I think nineteen ninety nine is um, like you could do a whole episode on nineteen ninety nine as like a great movie year, um, and that is that is one where you look at even oh, at even the films that didn't do very well, like a film like The Iron Giant or something, and when you look at it, um, like in retrospect, you think, oh my god, that was like a masterpiece. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of movies that kind of have that feel to them. Uh, yeah. A lot of movies that I think people our age and, and uh, maybe slightly younger probably would point to as being like the movies that got them into into film in a serious way. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, like Fight Club or something like that is pretty popular with, with you know, are they called Millennials? Who are Millennials? I'm not sure. Uh, millennials, as I understood it, or as how I was first taught the term, means people who were born under the Reagan administration. Right, so people okay. born from 1980 onwards would be classified as millennials. But at a certain point, it seems to have gone from that to meaning people who were born during at the turn of the millennium. Mm. Uh, or, That's quite like, a spread of last 20 years. Yeah, because like the, the idea that I was initially, it was like, oh, people who came of age at the turn of the millennium, people who were like in their late teens or early adulthood in the year 2000s, they're millennials, and instead it's completely migrated. So even though they're all lumped together, like I don't really feel as if um, my kind of ex- life experience really connects to people who have like grown up in a world where they always had broadband and iPhones. Mm. It's very, very different. Yeah. I, all I know is that I don't. All I know about millennials is that I'm terrified of them, um, <laughs> and they're ruining everything. You mentioned you mentioned Fight Club there, and um, I just wanted to to mention this. Um, there's a guy at my work who very often ends conversations with "I am Jack's complete lack of surprise," and I just really want him to watch another movie. <laughs> I feel I feel like Fight Club was the last movie he watched because I don't understand why you're still referencing that 17 years later. Uh, it just yeah, it just strikes me as such a weird thing to reference multiple times a day. Mm, maybe he was like one of those people who, after seeing Wayne's World, like just exhausted the <sighs> kind of swings and knots and all that kind of shit. And you know he he finally moved on to something else, but now he's stuck on Fight Club. Does does this does this gentleman listen to the show? I don't think so. Oh, I think we should probably uh, encourage him to to do so. So, um, <laughs> you know, because there are other films available. 
uh, other than Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really care for Fight Club. Do you, do you care for Fight Club? Uh, no, not really. I, I really liked it. Um, or, uh, no. I liked, I think, the cultural conversation about it. Like, I liked the fact that as soon as it came out, it was a thing that people parodied. And everyone knew what it was parodying. Mm-hmm. Like, you could get things like episodes of Spaced, where it coming out in, like, 2001, where they do a pretty direct parody of it and they kind of drop the references and everything like that. And But I was never that kind of impressed by it as a movie. And as, like, time has gone on, particularly as, like, David Fincher has, like, made stuff like Zodiac, uh, I find it a little less impressive overall. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I've just never really got on board with... I, I always get on... I, I see it and I have a problem getting past their, like oh god isn't everyone like this angle mm. and just like oh, yeah. well yeah it's a bit kind of all right i get it you know what i mean stop it but yeah anyway what the fuck are we talking about this week it's uh <laughs> something to do with typecasting um directors uh also get kind of pigeonholed i guess into certain things and uh that all seems to come around by success i mentioned this briefly a few weeks ago but the one that weirdly pops out at me all the time is John McTiernan, who is now in prison, we should probably uh, keep saying, or, or has been released from prison, but he was he's, he's done a bit of bird. Um, and he was like, I remember seeing an interview with him on the set of like Rollerball or some shit that he'd done. And um, he was like, the Rollerball remake, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, well, I used to, I, you know, my career started, I was like off Broadway. And now I'm directing Predator. And <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, it's weird how people's, how people's, careers go that way and it's because of success they will have started their work doing kind of small films and then they would have been given an action gig or a bigger budget gig with a second unit director who will handle the action and they'd have said you know just help us get a slightly more convincing performance out of this kind of like cloth-eared eastern european ham that you we've cast and he's done it and it's been successful and now he's the action guy hmm yeah um, who else can we think of as kind of the, that has been stuck in that kind of way when that perhaps not how they started out? Well, I kind of feel as if um, Spielberg kind of had that a little bit because when he started out, he was he made stuff like Jewel, which obviously a TV movie, but it, it kind of is typical of his of his approach, which was like it was a very lean, tense thriller, and then you had Sugarland Express, which was very a lean, tense road movie, and then Jaws, which is like a lean, tense uh, like shark movie. But because of the success of that, um, it allowed him to kind of do pretty much whatever he wants, and he he kind of evolved from um, like someone who seemed to be such like an heir to. Um, you know, Hitchcock is obviously the the kind of big example, but even someone like a John Frankenheimer or something, like someone who's just a really good genre guy to being the guy who makes like the big <laughs> the movies that make all of the money and redefine blockbuster entertainment. Uh, mm. I find it really interesting, even though you can see there's a kind of a clear progression from something like Jaws to, to Raiders and, and whatnot. Uh, it's still interesting to kind of feel, to, to think that, he went from being arguably kind of like someone who worked within disreputable genres to kind of like the Mr. Prestige in very, in a very short period of time. Mm, David O. Russell became Mr. Prestige somehow. Um, yeah. That's a very uh, weird one. If you think about his early career, think about something like spanking the monkey, um, mm. which is not what you'd think of as someone who would perhaps be laying the foundations of a, uh, Oscar baiting career, and then even even if you follow his career into something like well, going back to nineteen ninety nine again, uh, Three Kings, mm. um, which is yeah, it's actually a pretty good film. Three Kings, it's a very spiky mm. satire of the Iraq War. Yeah, and then you know, ten years, fifteen years later, you've you've got Joy, American Hustle, and insert name here of whatever film he makes his film every three years now. Mm. Um, we know that. Christian Bale will be in it and we know that it won't be very interesting. Yeah, I mean like the leap between I Heart Huckabees, which was like the last film of the first part of his career and The Fighter mm. is quite stark. Like um formally I think there's there's a little bit of of similarity to them and I think he's quite an improvisational guy and he's someone who likes to um kind of assemble something with where the scenes are more driven by energy and music than anything else like 
the fighter is such a more conventional movie than I Heart Huckabee's, you know, kind of a strange existential comedy. Mm. Uh, and then like the fighter, Silver Lion's playbook, all of the stuff that has gained him kind of like huge critical and commercial success at the expense of arguably at the expense of him being like an interesting director. Yeah. That's kind of, it's very strange how that ended up happening. Mm, yeah. One director that I think of sometimes when I think about someone who's desperately trying to avoid being pigeonholed uh, is Kenneth Branagh, mm. who, when he first kind of became famous in, you know, Hollywood circles, he was the Shakespeare guy. You know what I mean? He would do the Shakespeare stuff and he didn't mm-hmm. shy away from it. He did Shakespeare. And then in the early 90s, he, he kind of made a weird, really strange, quite bad film noir uh, called Dead Again with him and Emma Thompson. And a, an all-star cast of people, almost as if to say, "Hey, I can do stuff that's other than Shakespeare." And then since then, he's just his his career is kind of flip flops between doing um, conventional, unconventional Shakespeare adaptations to doing like Thor, uh, you know, a Marvel film, which you think, well, they cast him because they wanted to kind of give some Shakespearean grandeur to this um, what might seemingly be daft comic book story, um, but actually, you've got. A, you know, a guy from the RSC directing a fucking Thor film. And whose, like, two previous movies were, I, bl- I think, an adaptation of The Magic Flute mm-hmm. and a remake of Sleuth. Yes. Not the most commercial ventures. Yeah, which is strange. He's kind of, you know, he's bankable. He did Cinderella, he did Thor, you know, films that, you know, made you know a lot of money. He's doing the murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, his career seems to me that he's someone who is kind of deliberately trying not to be that guy. Yeah. Soderbergh feels like that as well. Mm. Like pretty much from the very beginning of his career, like he starts out with sex lies and videotapes and you think, like, okay, this is like a, it's kind of a creepy, but very human story It's recognizably uh, uh, kind of human drama it takes place more or less in the real world. And then immediately afterwards, Kafka, mm. <laughs> a kind of absurdist black and white uh, movie that's sort of about Franz Kafka, but also an adaptation of Franz Kafka. And it ends up like a Bond movie. Uh, and then like the movie after that is like King of the Hill, which is like him trying to do a heartwarming Spielberg kind of family movie. And then the underneath, a kind of a, 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 a kind of a neo-noir and then Schizopolis. Like mm. he just jumped around. He's like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do the same thing twice, even remotely. You are not going to be able to pin me down as anything." So I guess his typecasting is as someone who can't be typecast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go back to actors for a second. You mentioned at the top of the show there are some people we can think of who you know were kind of going a certain way, and then they did one role that was successful or made a choice to do something, and now they're stuck in it. Um, and probably the person we talked about before we went on air that this refers to mainly someone like Liam Neeson mm, who um, post Taken has made a lot of Taken films not all of them called Taken <laughs> yeah his like his the first part of his career like he would do the occasional big budget action movie something like an Excalibur but which wasn't like an action movie so much as it was kind of a fantasy epic or or like a Rob Roy or something which again is like they're more kind of prestigious or reputable i guess mm-hmm. but then like yeah and then a lot of his stuff is like you know kind of working with big name directors and then sort of 2008 makes taken and then suddenly he's like the new charles bronson like just constantly in mid-budget violent um action movies and it's it's just weird that that has become his default mode except for like and, and then occasionally he'll be in something kind of he'll try and push back on that like when he was going to be in Lincoln and then they had to delay that and end up going to Daniel Day-Lewis or silence the the kind of the Scorsese movie that's coming out but now it seems like it's gone the other way the idea of Liam Neeson in a real movie in in kind of a prestigious movie seems like an anomaly mm. whereas for a long time that was the, those were the movies he made mm. yeah yeah i mean he was he's always been kind of like you know, he's very tall, isn't he, William Neeson? Always mm. been kind of a fairly imposing person physically. And, um, you know, he's in stuff like Schindler's List or like Michael Collins or Rob Roy or something. He could, 
you know, command an air of authority. But then mm. I didn't particularly think of him as an action guy. And then he did kind of yeah. like, you know, he's done Star Wars. He, you know, he's in, you know, one of those those Star Wars films. Um, yes. And he fights in that. And, you know, he's kind of... But then it's, it's not only that he became an action guy. He became a really shit cheap tawdry action guy. He basically made <laughs> Taken and then there's like a walk amongst the tombstones and the one with January Jones that I can't remember the name of. They've all got the same poster. Unknown. Unknown. They've all got the same poster and they've all got the same <laughs> uh, feel. It's like they almost, you know, they, they kind of banged them out five at a time in a couple of weeks. Yeah, he's kind of become the, like, the slightly older Jason Statham. Mm. All like, not not just because of the, the Luke Besson uh, collection but the, those are the kind of it's like if you want to make a movie where the hero isn't quite athletic enough to do all his own stunts mm. and to have him climb over a fence they need to cut 17 times in 10 seconds yeah uh which i recommend people look up on youtube that's it's great if you want to see the worst fucking editing in any movie mm. <laughs> it's ridiculous um then that's kind of the the role that he is that's kind of the slot that he has found himself kind of being inserted into um well, yeah, which is weird because even when he was in like Star Wars or something, his whole thing was he just had this air of gravitas to him. That's why he's the voice of Aslan. Mm. You know, that's that that that's kind of what he purvey- gives off is kind of like fatherly or or kind of uh, patrician level of kind of um, of nobility or whatever. Um, and yeah, that's not what he's giving off in Taken, and it's it's kind of sequels and slash uh, indirect sequels, spiritual yeah. sequels. Yeah, it's kind of weird that like um, you see people like John Cusack as well, like in the in the recent years, um, having grown up with his stuff in the kind of the nineties and early two thousands. His his stuff was always interesting, and he was very important. John Cusack, and people forget how important he was because he could have done any old shit, and even when he did in kind of like for example when he did Con Air, right, he would always have a hand in writing the scripts. And he would have like a writing partner, and like there was there was like things that weren't perhaps you wouldn't think of him initially. Something like High Fidelity, where he took it on as a producer and brought his guys on, and they wrote it, and like all of his projects in that during that time, um, kind of had this kind of air about them. They were John Cusack things. He had an energy to him, like Gross Point Blank, um, things like that. Now he just does straight to video action films, and I kind of don't know what happened. Yeah, it's. It's like around maybe that movie he did fourteen oh eight, like the uh Stephen King adaptation. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be his gateway into the more tawdry stuff. But it really is yeah, it's just kind of once he seemed to not be uh people's first choice for romantic leads, he had to find something else and the thing he fell into is the stuff Nick Cage uh, Nick Cage turned down. Mm. He he doesn't want to do the stuff Nick Cave turned down. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? Because that would just be super weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, is it like there's something that I also kind of kind of thought about this? Is there is there anyone kind of using John Cusack as a springboard? Is there anyone you can think of who appears to be kind of stuck in typecasting hell that you would like to rescue? Um, I kind of feel like Matt Damon is in danger of falling into this mm-hmm. because he was someone whose career was irrevocably changed by by being uh, in the born identity yeah um which like because we were talking about this beforehand how it seems weird to think that there was a time when matt damon wasn't an action movie star mm-hmm. but when you look at his early career like you know obviously um goodwill hunting being kind of his breakthrough but then like the stuff he did like immediately afterwards he was like a, a kind of a serious actor guy and he was he also had kind of a somewhat uh more slender physique so he wasn't, you could see why Ben Affleck went that way because he's a larger guy. But then like Matt Damon, you didn't think would be the person who would, would do that. Uh, mm. But since then, he kind of mixes it up every so often by taking on kind of a smaller role, something like Promised Land or whatever. Um, but for the most, like the fact that he went back to the Bourne franchise this year and no one really cared, I think is maybe a sign that he is kind of running on fumes and he may be approaching the end of that period of his career and maybe it would be a good idea for him to try and refocus and do something a little more a little smaller a little more intimate again mm. um or, or to kind of the follow that he's he's like the slightly more successful version of ben affleck in that regard because ben affleck got stuck in 
the kind of the cheesy, terrible action movie um, uh, 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 rut for a really long time. And then he reinvented himself as a director. Uh, and you kind of wonder if Matt Damon needs to do something like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it is... Like the Martian, he was he was really good, and I really enjoyed mm. him in the Martian. But like yeah. that's still a kind of a big thing, isn't it? I guess. And like I think I was as surprised as anyone that he went back to um, the Bourne thing, and the Paul Greengrass went with him as well. That like mm. you know when you got to part three of that, and then they rebooted the franchise without him, you pretty much sure that, and you know he even said himself that he was kind of done with it. And to come back and kind of soft reboot it to literally no fanfare whatsoever for no reason seems, you know, a bit weird given that you feel like he, he's, he's not going to struggle for offers, is he? No. Uh, so it kind of, uh, and he is, obviously he's still like, obviously in great shape. He's in better shape than me and he's got like 15 years on me or whatever. But like those aren't the sort of roles that you can keep doing forever. Uh, and at a certain point you have to wonder if, you know, you need to try something different and he is you know he's a very capable actor you know he's a good writer he is someone who could kind of move into something else but he seems to have got stuck on that treadmill of oh i am a guy who does big budget action movies or sci-fi movies or whatever um then that's 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 what i do uh, and you kind of wonder if perhaps soderbergh needs to cast him in something small again because uh, mm-hmm. like the last interesting thing he did was probably behind the candelabra yeah yeah, yeah, that was the last time he really pushed himself, and that didn't just kind of put him in a either a genre that he was very comfortable in, or which didn't, or which didn't really kind of push him. Mm. Man, they, the lesson he needs to go back to TV. That's the thing. Yeah, um, I would rescue from typecasting purgatory Anna Faris because uh, she's mm. always an actress that I've liked, but uh, I'm yet to see her in a good film uh, because she appears yeah. to have all the qualities of a very talented, like comedic actress. Um, but he's trapped in the hellhole of utter shit. Uh, like, I think she's in every scary movie film and kind of crap like The House Bunny and just, well, Movie 43. We don't need to kind of uh, to go back there again. But, yeah, um, yeah that's it's, you know, always kind of really depressing when I kind of see her name pop up on things and think, someone, please, just give her a role in something and make it successful. Yeah, it's it's really weird that because I feel like everyone likes Anna Faris and yeah. hardly anyone likes the movie she. Like everyone agrees. Oh yeah, she's like just this really talented Lucille Ball esque comedian. Mm. But like, there's no single work that you could really point to which say, oh yeah, that was like the one that demonstrated how good she is. It's just I don't know. She just has this like effortless. Eff- she's effortlessly charming and charismatic on screen, but what involved that involves is being in like fucking awful horror movie parodies from 15 years ago mm, yeah yeah but anyway there you go is there anything else you'd like to add about typecasting before we move on to recommended uh sure yeah i was just gonna uh, kind of rattle off some uh some examples i thought of, of people who were just like amazing that they they kind of did a like one typecasting kind of thing or they did one uh playing against type that worked really well and they never revisited and so it's never really been spoiled uh the two that i had were ben kingsley and sexy beast right yeah who has never really revisited the level of deeply distressing <laughs> awfulness uh of don logan uh which is all to the, the good because that is a, such a wonderfully realized and distinctive character uh, mm-hmm. That it would be it would be ruined if that became his entire career. The power of it would be lessened. Uh, but but you know, seeing the guy who played Gandhi doing that is is incredible. And the other was Albert Brooks in Drive, who has had a little kind of a mini resurgence since that movie. But like all the stuff he's been, he's never been like kind of this deeply disturbing heavy in the way that he isn't there. And I think the fact that he did that and then has never really done anything similar is is one of the reasons why that performance really holds up uh, even though like a few years removed as, as much as i like that movie it doesn't kind of uh, it's not one that i like to revisit but i will occasionally watch like highlights of his scenes on youtube because he's just so kind of magnetic and watchable mm, yeah can you think of anyone who is has kind of moved kind of out of their their kind of like comfort zone to do something genre wise i'm kind of trying to think about 
Robert De Niro, we were talking about him a couple of weeks ago in Midnight Run, like how funny he is in Midnight Run. But it's not because he's being funny, it's because he's the straight man in a very funny kind of double act. Can you think of anyone who has kind of broken their typecasting shackles by like crossing genres? I think like Robin Williams did that a few times. Yeah. Because obviously he's he became famous for, for being the comedy guy and then he achieved a lot of kind of critical success for being kind of exuberant support uh, exuberant characters in things like Good Morning Vietnam, which but was still kind of within his wheelhouse. But then in the early 2000s, you get him in One Hour third Photo and Insomnia, mm-hmm. where he's a deeply, where he's so um, contained you know there's none of his none of his bigness you know he's just this kind of really intense and um repressed certainly in one hour photo he's so repressed and so awkward and weird and terrifying uh and that works like really really well that was those are probably his certainly one hour photo is probably his best attempt at breaking out of of what he had become known for mm yeah yeah absolutely Let's wrap this up and have some recommendations. What have you got this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a movie that absolutely doesn't need my help in convincing people to go and see it because it's probably the most acclaimed movie of the year. It's just today won like four awards from the LA Film Critics Society. Uh, so it's doing okay. It's doing okay. And the movie is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, mm. which is a movie we talked about a little bit in our preview for the the kind of the autumn-winter um season a few months ago uh but when we were talking about there it was a movie that had a little bit of buzz <laughs> and yeah. now it's like the front runner at the for everything for every award um and basically moonlight is a movie um that's uh, told in three distinct parts each of which focuses on a different period in the life of this main character called uh, chiron who's a, a young black gay uh, man who um and, and it looks at him at different periods over about a 20 year span of his life starting with him as a very young child uh, then him in kind of like high school and then him uh as an adult and uh it's just this wonderfully beautiful uh examination of notions of identity the way that he kind of comes to grips tries to come to grips with his sexuality at these different stages of his life but how the culture in which he is growing up, which is like 80s or maybe early 90s Miami, uh, uh, you know, how he is not able to be who he wants to be and the, the struggles that come along with that, how he is bullied and beaten for, for, for being who he is and how he kind of tries to hide it and not entirely successfully his relationship with his mother played by Naomi Harris uh in each segment uh kind of brilliantly aging really well <laughs> it has to be said one of the best uh examples of kind of a character aging up over the course of a movie I've ever seen uh and uh the acting's fantastic in it uh the actor um, uh, Maya Ali who uh, is perhaps most famous for being the villain in the first season of Luke Cage is kind of the guy who's getting the most attention he plays a drug dealer in the childhood section of the movie uh he's great but everyone in the movie is really fantastic barry jenkins uh, kind of crafts this really poetic and, and and deeply cinematic vision you know his use of of music and and uh editing to kind of create a particular mood uh is really evocative and, and wonderful uh it's just it's just incredible it's 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 just a really wonderful movie and i'm so glad that uh, I got to see it on a big screen. I didn't have to wait to kind of watch it at home. It happened to play a uh, theatre like 20 minutes from my house, which is very rare, and I think a sign of how well the film is doing. Uh, and uh, it's just it's just, it's just, just really wonderful, and uh, I can't wait for it to get completely ignored by the Oscars so we can all be so incensed that it didn't get the recognition that it deserves, because it is uh, one of... It, it, it does feel like a kind of a, a monumental movie. Hmm, Cool. I'm not going to recommend a monumental movie, but I'm going to recommend something good. Like just the conversation we were having about how good 1999 was uh, has made me kind of uh, look back on my letterbox list and see uh, what else came out then and uh, what I could possibly recommend from that year. And fuck me, I'm spoiled for choice. There was some Mm. good shit out that year. Um, But I'm going to pick the Woody Allen film Sweet and Lowdown um, because that's popped out of me. That's one that never gets talked about. Um and uh, yeah, it really should. And like, it just reminded me that I should watch it again. But it's uh, a film where Sean Penn plays not Django Reinhardt, 
uh, in the film that is a, a kind of adaptation of not Django Reinhardt's life. Um, and it is uh, kind of a very kind of whimsical, uh, quite very funny. It's a, for one of, you know, he kind of went through a little bit of a phase, didn't he? Kind of making funnier ones in the late 90s, early 2000s before he went into his serious phase. Yeah, it's probably the last really likeable performance that Sean Penn gives, to my mind. Certainly mm. everything since then is super duper, uh, kind of parodically intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Sweet and Lowdown, like, that's like one of Woody Allen's that uh, often get, not gets talked about, and I think it's great. And it came out in 1999, which is a surefire seal of quality. And I know it's also looking at this list that so did Juice Bigelow, Male Gigolo. So, like, there was a lot to take in <laughs> in 1999, um, an awful lot. Um, oh, the Bone Collector, <laughs> that was that was a film. Um, it was a film. Yeah, no denying that. Yeah, I mean, we really should have done a 1999 episode. Maybe in like three years' time, we can do it like the 20th anniversary. <laughs> oh shit! That is oh, that makes me feel really super old. Makes me feel slightly less old, but only yeah. only by like five years. <laughs> well, that's fair. Anyway. That is your lot, everybody, on the subject of uh, typecasting and other such nonsense. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed it, why not leave us a little review? You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.